Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to this edition of the What's Next podcast, where I am thrilled to welcome all the way from Japan, Ben Ben Sao. Uh, he is a professor and former Dean of Excellence Education at INSEED. As a business innovation consultant, he has helped some of the world's leading companies build innovation into their corporate DNA. Ben Sao has been a visiting professor at Harvard Business School, a research fellow at the Wharton School of Management, and a visiting scholar at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. But he has a new book out called Built to Innovate, which has just been released, which we're going to talk about today. So welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you, Tiffany. Good, uh, I guess, good afternoon for you. Uh, yes, pleasure yes. Be, pleasure to be with you. Excellent. Well, we are going to start off with something I call bullish and bearish. Okay. So like the bull market or the bear market, so bullish, you're for it. Mm -hmm. Bearish, you're against it. Nothing too painful. Three quick questions. Are you ready? Yeah, let's go. All right. The first one, autonomous driving, bullish or bearish? Uh, I would say bullish. Okay. The next one, metaverse, bullish or bearish? Bullish. Okay. And the third one, time travel. Oh, definitely bullish. <laughs> all right. Okay. Three bullish. You know, I have to get better at these. I feel like I either get all bearish or all bullish. I, I have to get better. I mean, after 150 of them, you think I'd get better at this. But anyway, well, thank you. And I was, I was, I was thrilled to hear you're sort of bullish on metaverse. You know, let me, let me just ask why you're so bullish on it. Oh, I think it just adds a, a, another dimension of uh, of, of communication. Uh, I mean, as you, as you know, I'm in I'm in Japan, and I think that uh, anything that can help communication, that can help people understand the context where they they are, and eliminate any kind of physical barriers, because I think that is going to become more and more difficult to actually allow people to be face to face. So I think anything that can actually uh, bring context and large communication between people. I think I'm for it. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, let's dive into your book because I think that um, I love talking about innovation. You know, my title is actually Growth and Innovation Evangelist at Salesforce. So I love talking about innovation. Um, but let's start from the top. So yes. how do you how do you define innovation? Okay, so I mean, this, the, really, the simplest, uh, most uh, common way that uh, that I like to define it is really something uh, coming up. I mean, creating, thinking about, imagining, creating something that is that is new and creates value. So it has to it has to be new, otherwise it wouldn't be an innovation, and it has to create value. At least value for for a customer, and this could be beyond the usual suspects that people focus on. And it has to also uh, uh, create value for the for the organization. But uh, as a matter of fact, I uh, I make a distinction between innovation and innovating, uh, the noun and the verb. And and so, what's different for you? What I what I found is that very often uh, uh, when I when I go into a room and I uh, try to help people, especially frontline people. To, to let's let's learn about innovation. I found that there's a little bit of a tension, that there's a little bit of anxiety in the room. What I found is that the word innovation used as a noun is intimidating. And I couldn't really pick up why that was until one day I started to use the word, just by chance, use the word innovating as a verb. And I noticed that the the the, the tension, the stress would go away. And I figured out that Innovation very often is associated with with a with a 
a product or a process, but at least an outcome, uh, uh, a result. So when people think that their their boss wants innovation from them, they think that he wants the next kind of big kind of uh, blockbuster product or a new market space. And, And so you can imagine when you start to qualify innovation with disruptive or start to call it blue ocean strategy, that creates a lot of anxiety for people. But if you use the verb innovating, people understand that it's about action. It's about that activities. It's about a behavior. And these things you can teach, you can learn by using tools, by you know doing training or incentivizing people to behave a certain way. So I like to use the word innovating just like if you think about the iceberg, innovation is what you see on top of the iceberg, what is visible, but what is below under the water is innovating, is the collective innovating capabilities. And if you will, the book is very much about how to build that collective innovating capability that will hopefully give you innovation, which is the output. So, right. And, and so based on what you just said, I, I, I'm sure you're going to agree with what I'm about to say, but everyone plays a role in innovating. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as a matter of fact, that's kind of the pillar of the book is that uh, uh, what you need to do is to create what I call an innovating engine, which is a, a legitimized, totally protected space within the organization where three things need to happen. First, anyone can innovate. Not only your genius leader or your R&D guys, you can innovate in everything you do, not only your products and services, but you can innovate in your internal processes, you can innovate in your functions. And more importantly, innovating, or we can call it loosely innovation if you want, but innovating has become a habit. And I think this is, I totally agree with you that anybody Uh, not only uh, can innovate, but should be expected to innovate. Innovating should be part of. Well, wouldn't you agree then that the culture has to actually support it? And so I'm going to give you an example and you just brought it up. So I'm going to, I'm going to use the fact that you brought it up to use it as an example, but blue ocean strategy, great book. But what always concerned me when it first came out, not obviously since they've put out the second book, but the first book was, you know, Friday, your executive, your CEO, whoever reads the book, Monday, he shows up, she shows up, boom, boom, boom on the table. We are going to go after Blue Ocean and let's go, right? And you don't have a culture of innovation. And so how do you, if you don't feel like, right? So I'm a frontline person, I'm a mid-level manager, I'm a, you know, I'm a CEO of a small company and I say, I want to do what Ben just described, be more innovating, right? And allow people to bring that ty- those types of ideas forward. But I don't have a culture that's built for that. Where to begin? Right. So actually, this is a very important point you're making. I think uh, uh, I, I, I can come back about, uh, you know, the, the, the way people have defined innovation and kind of almost kind of uh, uh, scared people away from innovation, particularly the front line. But one thing I discovered doing the research for the book is that middle managers are so pivotal. To, to innovation. I mean, they are the ones who can help create create the culture. Uh, so w- what I found is that uh, you, you need to create, when I say an innovating engine, I mean it as a formal, concrete space 
just like we have an execution engine with you know a structure, processes, and a culture, we need to create a, a, a formal concrete space that I call the innovating engine. And in that innovating engine, you have everybody has to play a role. Three three important roles. Actually, maybe the best is to give you an example. Uh, let me talk maybe about uh, Bayer the uh, global pharmacology and uh, life science company based in Germany. So this is a company with a, a, a huge history of you know, scientific achievements. Uh, so they have a very powerful, uh, let's say, uh, specialist R&D uh, innovation uh, component. But uh, starting in 2014, they decided to create what I refer to as an innovating engine to leverage the capabilities of the 100,000 employees working in the company. So how did they do this? First, they made the whole board responsible for innovating, for innovation. So the whole board was responsible for innovation. Then they selected 80 senior managers across all country groups and global functions to support the board as ambassadors. So these innovation ambassadors who spend time, most of their time with middle managers, explaining, educating, uh, 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 sponsoring, uh, advocating for innovation. And then for these man- middle managers, they created a formidable support structure. So they, uh, between 2016 and 2020, they trained and certified a thousand innovation coaches activated locally across the world. And then for the frontline people, for every every employee, they created WeSolve, a digital platform where any employee can post a, a information about a problem they're, uh, you know, they're struggling with and invite ideas and input from anyone uh, else in the company. Uh, just to give you an example, uh, at any given time, you have 200 challenges posted on WeSolve. 40,000 people have participated in WeSolve. And they, they, they tell me the, the platform is in English and they have only 50,000 people speaking English. And what really blew my mind is when they told me that out of the best ideas that they send back to a challenge, two-thirds of the best ideas come from a place different from where the person who posted the challenge works. So that shows you that everyone across the organization is involved in innovation. So this is for me a very good example of a systematic approach to build this innovating engine where senior leaders, middle managers, and frontline people are contributing. Absolutely. You need everyone to build that culture. Yeah, and and do you think that... I have my opinions on it, but I'd love to hear what you think. You know, this sort of co-creation with customers and kind of co-creation with employees is such a powerful, rich uh, space for you to go to get varying opinions. And would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So so I was trying to explain how this... uh, First, this innovating uh, uh, engine works, so it does have uh, a, a structure, and 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 which means that you have different people 
uh, with uh, roles and responsibilities. Okay, so everybody's involved: senior level people, middle managers, and then and then uh, frontline people. But then you need to create, especially for the frontline people, you need to create a space that um, closes the gap. And for me, two gaps are very important to close: the gap between the would-be innovators and the the customers or the end users. And then another one, which is internally, close the gap between the innovators and the people who are going to be uh, facing the customer, the people who are going to be selling it. So let me do, let me give you an example again. Uh, this, is, this is about um, a company called Kortsa. So you may notice uh, that uh, in my book, I give a lot of examples, but... Of course, I talk about the uh, regular uh, suspects, you know, the tech companies, the entertainment companies, uh, the people, the stories that everybody wants to hear. But I have uh, uh, numerous examples about companies and, and industries that you wouldn't kind of necessarily kind of uh, think are extremely innovative. So this is a Turkish company uh, uh, which makes fabric that goes into reinforcing tires. So the customers are the, the, the Goodyear's and the Pirelli's and the Michelin's of this world. So what they do is that on a regular basis, they send cross-disciplinary teams. So it's not only the frontline people, but you have to have cross-disciplinary teams. They send them to go and, and, and literally camp for a few days at the customer's factories. So you would have somebody from engineering, somebody from uh, uh, production, marketing, HR, legal, would go to a plant and stay there camping. In the beginning, they used to literally camp in a tent uh, and, and basically roam around their customers and talk to people about what they see. And again, just to, to finish the example, they told me once about uh, a team uh, was at a, a customer factory and they had noticed that the uh, uh, the customers were, tr were were having troubles handling rolls of fabric when they were trying to unload them from from trucks. So what the team understood is that they were, in effect, peeking into a problem that the customer had never talked to them about. And, and we can come back to this. This is what I call the silence of the customer. They were able to listen to the silence of the customer. And then they came back to, to Corsa and they devised a small kind of process that they refined and went back to the customer and teach it to them. And they were able to reduce the resources needed to unload the, the roles from uh, 30 minutes for three people to 12 minutes in one person. And this is, this is fantastic because the company who used to be um, uh, a commodity supplier became a provider of services and, 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 and processes to their customers. And they became one of the top innovative suppliers to the, to the industry. Well, thank you for that example, because I'd say often, you know, there's a show in the U.S. and, and in Europe as well called Undercover Boss or Dragon's Den or, you know. Right, right, right. And, you know, I, I actually put in my own book that I think it's funny that they, not ha ha funny, but funny, that they put spend sort of five minutes at the beginning of the show putting hair and makeup to disguise the executive. And personally, I think that's a waste of television time because they could walk out amongst their people and no one would recognize them anyway. 
Right. Because Absolutely. they never go to the warehouse. They never go to the front line. They never go to the retail store. And so the things they uncover in the show, in my mind, is like, geez, like if you just talk to your employees, you'd know that it was very heavy to pick things off the truck. Right. And so either make the packages smaller or put a forklift in the back of the truck. But right, you right, have right, higher right, medical right, costs right. because people are hurting their right. back, taking things out of the truck. Absolutely. But unless you see it, you right. don't know it's happening, right? right kind of a right, thing. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. But but I also think that jobs to be done, I'd love to hear what you think about the concept, yeah, yeah. but you know, jobs to be done, for those of you listening that don't know what it is, it's sort of like there's something that a customer wants to do or a person wants to do. And the job has remained fairly constant. So, you know, I send you smoke signals a thousand years ago to tell you, come over to my house for dinner or to yes, my cave yes, for dinner, yes, right? Yes, yes. Well, today I do it via the metaverse. Right, right. <laughs> right? And I say, right. come to my place for dinner. The job yes. is I want to invite you to dinner, but the right. solution to Absolutely. do that is what is yes. different, right? Yes. Yes. And so how do you think the jobs to be done concept, construct, mindset plays a part in innovation? I think it's essential. I think it's essential. I think this is something that should be, I, I, I don't want to say generalized, but this is for me a very important source of innovation. So again, when I was uh, talking about the uh, uh, engine, the innovating engine, so you can imagine companies having their execution engine and have a very well formalized innovation engine. And of course, the concept here is that any employee would spend some time in both engines. I don't have any problem people spending 90%, 95% of their time in the execution engine if it's necessary. But what is important is that the 5% is protected and it is legitimized and it is systematic. But when, when the people spend their time in the innovating engine, the essential thing is to be able to pivot, to switch your mindset from what I call a, a supply side view, which is really what you do when you're in execution, to a customer side view. So when you are, even if it's for 30 minutes every month, 30 minutes in your innovating mode, then you should embrace a completely customer side view. And because there are a couple things that are essential to know, to, to, to pick up. One is you need to pick up the customer's, uh, what I call the, the voice of the customer. So what is the customer telling you? And there, what is very important for that is to develop a sense of empathy. Those 30 minutes you're spending the customer is really you're trying to listen to their, their, them with a great empathy. But then there's what I was referring to earlier, the silence of the customer, the things that they don't tell you. And why they don't tell you is either because they don't know at all or they know, but they don't think it's your problem to solve for them. So this is the example I can tell you about how uh, Philips, the Dutch uh, uh uh, I mean, appliance and consumer electronics company uh, did when they um, developed the first kettle with a lime scale stopper. So this comes back to your notion of jobs to be done. So they called one of the, the consultants in our team to help. They were you know, trying to re-energize their market share in the UK market. So the team leader had sent a few people to literally live with the customers, you know, invite them, uh, inviting them not for dinner, but inviting them for a cup of tea. And so they were with the customer, living with the customer, and some of them had noticed that when people were pouring the boiling water in the cup of tea, 
there would be on the top of the water, there would be this kind of little coat, little film of limescale, because there was a lot of calcium in the water where they were. So this is important because the customers did, did know about the limescale problem, obviously, because they were trying to scoop it out with a spoon and take it out of the tea. But here, the team at Philips saw something there was nothing about to do about the kettle, but they saw a problem. They went back and solved it and came back with a mouse filter that stops limescale when you pour the water in the tea. So this is a very good example of uh, the a problem of a silence of the customer. The customer knows they have a problem. If they want to complain about it, they'll never complain to the kettle manufacturer about it. But you understood something about the problem they're trying to solve, the, 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 the job to be done. The job to be done is not thing to do with a kettle, is to prepare tea. And they have a problem that they won't talk to you about. They'll talk to the water authorities about it, but not to you. And if you can solve that, you have identified what I call a weak signal. A signal that not everybody is going to pick up because it takes effort skills. And actually, I have a chapter where I develop some tools about how to listen to these weak signals. And it requires understanding the life of the customer, the full job to be done. I think this is really essential. Another mechanism also to learn about the jobs to be done is to actually try to learn from non-customers, uh, not your regular kind of, you know, uh, patronizing uh, customers. Yeah, and there's so much there. I had uh, Martin Lindstrom on my uh, yep. show who wrote the book Small Data, yep. right? All about looking for those little signals. Yes. You know, where are the magnets on the refrigerator? What does that tell you? Oh, they don't have toys. Let's create a toy. It's a billion dollar business, all for magnets on a refrigerator, right? There's so much power. And now technology, you know, machine learning, big data, AI can really help you try to look for some of those signals in the data but that doesn't replace the face-to-face, -face, sit down, have conversation, yes. understand. Yes. And oh, by yes. the way, you don't sit down with your customer and say, what can we do for you in the future? What should I innovate? Yes. What's my next big innovation? You have to watch yes. them pour the tea and absolutely. see the problem that they absolutely. don't even know, right? So absolutely, it, it's, it's not always about asking better questions. And it is very much... Again, I've been training people to learn how to, to, to you know, to look for the job to be done, listen to, with with empathy. It is something that everybody can 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 do and knows because we are all customers. Those behaviors we have when we get uh, uh, irritated when uh, somebody is not doing the right thing for us. So it's something that intuitively we understand. The important thing is to be aware that you have to switch. It's, it's a question of attitude and mental uh, uh, pre preparedness. If you don't switch your mind, and, and what I call, you know, move when you engage with your customer, if you don't, even if it's for 10 minutes at the end of a meeting where you're trying to sell a product, if you don't move your mindset from a tell mode where you're trying to sell, you're telling them, or from a sell mode and move into a listen listen mode i think this is this is very essential you have the information is there it's not it's not that the customers is trying to hide anything from you but it's a question that you you're not paying attention and i think it takes really a conscious uh, awareness conscious uh, effort to say okay now i'm going to be listening 
with deep empathy, with full mindfulness, and let me try to be the customer. Let me try to feel for the customer. And, um, I, you know, it's just a question of protecting that space and doing it on a regular basis. I think then one, once the muscle is trained, you can, you, you know, very good salespeople can do that at the same time, simultaneously. They're selling and they're observing around. But not everybody knows how to do that. So I think it's important to have a regular protected space where people train that muscle and then they will learn how to do it almost intuitively, but also without any specific tool. It would have been internalized in their in their mind. Well, this has just been fantastic, Ben. You know, uh, first thing I'd say is if you've enjoyed what, what we've been talking about, please go pick up his new book, Built to Innovate, and it'll give you some insights and some tools and some to-dos. But what I love most about it is that everyone plays a part. Absolutely. If you're an individual contributor, it's your first job, it's your first company, it's your first team, it's your first time manager, whatever it is, how can you show up every day um, with a beginner's mind to figure out what are the jobs to be done and how can you go after them by innovating so that you can become innovative? So Ben, maybe you could share with our listeners where they can keep up with the work you're doing and how to follow you and find your information. Uh, Please share. Oh, we have a we have a website for the book. So it's uh, uh, builttoinnovatethebook.com. And, and of course, you can find it on uh, uh, your local Amazon website uh, in any country. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. And also, you're also on Twitter, correct? Uh, LinkedIn, LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Okay, LinkedIn, great. Yes. All right, Ben. Well, thank you so much for joining us today well, on I thank the you. What's Next podcast. It was really a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Tiffany. What a fun conversation with Ben. I hope you enjoyed his thoughtful descriptions of how to differentiate between innovating and innovation. So many great things to take away. I hope you were inspired to pick up his book, Built to Innovate. Thank you for joining me today on the What's Next podcast. My name is Tiffany Boba. Don't forget to subscribe, tell your friends, leave some feedback, and I look forward to having you join next time. 